FT Weekend Food and Drink is supported by Plymouth Gin. Hi listeners, welcome to the fourth and final episode of our special mini-series on food and drink. Today I am bringing you a live conversation from the recent USFT Weekend Festival about one of my favorite topics, Mexican food and drink. It's hosted by my colleague, our drinks columnist Alice Lascelles, and you'll hear from two women who are elevating Mexican cuisine and culture around the world, Patty Inich and Berta Gonzalez Nieves. Patty is a chef and also the author of three best-selling cookbooks. My personal favorite is Treasures of the Mexican Table. She's also the host of the TV show La Frontera on PBS, where she brings us to eat with her on the U.S.-Mexico border. Patty is kind of like a food diplomat. And I love how she explores all the ways that Mexican food is just a lot more diverse than the tacos and the quesadillas that you know. Berta is the CEO and co-founder of Casa Dragones, which is a small luxury tequila company. She's also the first woman designated a master tequilera. I spent some time with Berta for a piece about tequila that I've put in the show notes. She's really interesting. She sort of helped rebrand tequila for Americans as this high-end spirit that you should probably be sipping. Okay, this is a great conversation. Let's get into it. This is FT Weekend, the podcast special edition. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Here's Patti Yinich and Berta Gonzalez-Nieves with my colleague, Alice Lascelles. Welcome to Beyond Borders Rethinking Mexican food and drink. Patty, maybe we can start with you. Mexican food has always been quite spicy, but I think it's particularly hot right now, isn't <laughs> it? I mean, what do, you, what do you think is fueling this huge interest in Mexican cuisine at the moment? I mean, I think that Mexican food has always been of interest um, outside of Mexico, but there used to be these kind of view of it being very exotic and I think increasingly with the access of more ingredients and the information about more dishes and regional cuisines, people feel like they can bring it home. I feel like the American palate has widened incredibly to the point that you not only have people going out for tacos every once in a while, but you have the hashtag Taco Tuesday and you mm. have people making tacos at home. There's mm -hmm. now books and books on like the hundreds and thousands of different kinds of tacos. And that's just one example. I feel like it's become a part of not only the American, but the international culinary lingo. Yeah, I mean, I think people are used to seeing Mexican food at more at the sort of like street food level and domestic level, but we're really now seeing it in the sort of upper echelons of fine dining as well, aren't we? And Alice, I think, and, and Bertha, I think you, you may see this in tequila too. I feel like the outside world, looking down a little on Mexican food, you know, it wasn't French food or Italian food or the finer foods. It was looked down a little bit as, you know, the taco, the street food, it has to be cheap. It has to be you know, not, not valued as such. And I think it's not only the outsiders, but Mexicans. We think that everything that's outside of Mexico is superior. We have this kind of inferiority complex yeah. where in Mexico, when somebody had a birthday or a celebration, you'd go to the French food to celebrate. You'd go to the Italian food to celebrate. And it took a big movement and revolution like 15 years ago, you know, when you started with tequila and 
uh, when the big Mexican chefs started being recognized, when we got the UNESCO Heritage Award recognition, that Mexicans began saying our food is worthy of a white tablecloth as well. And, uh, but uh, I mean, this is a story very much for tequila as well. I think a lot of people, you know, used to think of it as something you drank as a student, you know, shots and a bad hangover and all of that kind of thing. This image of tequila has totally changed, has it? I was looking at some data um, just the other day that was showing tequila will be the most valuable spirit in the US by the end of 2023 of any spirit. So that really gives you an idea of like the premiumization that's happening in tequila and, at the moment. And I think it supports that voracious appetite that the global consumer has for culture and authenticity. Mexico has a richness of culture mm -hmm. that you can see it in architecture, in design, in obviously in cuisine, mm -hmm. in contemporary art. Mm -hmm. Tequila has come a long way, the same way as Mexican cuisine. Yeah. I think uh, we are on a mission to showcase that tequila has more than 250 years of history. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Aztecs were you know, fermenting agave. So way before that. Yeah. And, uh, and there is a true gift of craftsmanship in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to prove that tequila can compete with any other sipping spirit around the world. Mm -hmm. Should we take a look at this tequila then? Absolutely. To get things started. So I'm going to hand over to Berta to really talk us through this. <laughs> we're going to be tasting Casa Dragones Joven. So this tequila is made for sipping and pairing with food. So... What you're gonna get in this tequila is the floral and the citrus notes of the Blanco tequila, balanced with the sweetness and the spice of the extra aged tequila. So it's a blend of two different styles. It's really um, fragrant rather than fiery, isn't it? Just the aroma so of it. So the fun. nose in the experience of taste is really the eyes of the palate. There's around 600 different aromas and flavors cataloged in the Mexican Academy of Tequila. So the options that we have as producers are really endless. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, the aroma is really fresh, it's really inviting, really subtle. And uh, we're gonna do the first sip and second sip, and then I promise you, we won't be micromanaging your, your experience. <laughs> <laughs> now this has a lot more elegance on the finish, I think, from the fire water that a lot of people sort of, you know, drank as a student. How do you achieve that sort of smoother? So we believe in harvesting the plant when it's really ready to be harvested. Our agave is right at the skirt of the volcano of tequila. So we have a very rich mineral soil. So that really makes a huge difference. And then, you know, it's the craftsmanship that comes into a product. That the whole idea is that the, our product says sipping tequila. The whole idea is that people believe in us to sip and savor. Well, we'll carry on savoring this. Um, but in, in the meantime, Patty, can you pick a, a couple of dishes that you think might surprise people or be lesser known that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think one that most people will recognize is mole. When people think about mole, people think about the chocolate-based mole sauce from Puebla, which, I mean, it's exquisite. Everybody loves it. But just like that mole, there's hundreds, if not thousands of mole recipes that can be made with five ingredients. And as we say in Mexico, con una mano en la cintura, like with a hand on your hip. Um, so one of those dishes is a white mole that I have in the book uh -huh. that is called mole de novia, bride's mole sauce, because it's white and every ingredient in it has to be white. So it has Ingredients that you wouldn't think of go in a mole. It has pine nuts. It has green apple. It has 
plantain. It's this incredibly delicate sauce that you wouldn't think is a mole like the, you know, rich chocolatey sauce from Puebla. But I think every mole story, every mole recipe tells the story of the DNA of a community or a family in a specific historical time. And that's mm. the beautiful thing about what we do. Yeah. Talking about sort of tradition and I suppose then authenticity, you know, uh, this is something we were talking about a little bit backstage, but it, this is a hot topic at the moment in food about sort of authenticity, appropriation, like what is the correct version of a traditional dish? Like, where do you both stand on this, Patty? I'm very opinionated about it. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I mean, who has the right to drink tequila? I say everyone, right? Who has the right to cook Mexican food? I say everyone. As long as you do your research and you give due credit. To give you an example, there's a phenomenal restaurant here in D.C. if you guys haven't gone, called Tiger Fork. The chef is Peruvian, Tiger Fork is a restaurant that um, specializes in Chinese food from Hong Kong. Is he culturally appropriating? I mean, this is a man who went to Hong Kong, lived there for years, studied with, you know, chefs there, loves the cuisine, loves the ingredients, did his research, does classic traditional foods, and then he plays a little bit too. So I think that if we start saying from the outside, who has a right? to cook it, or who has a right to taste it. We're only putting ourselves in the food. If people have a hunger for learning about Mexican food and they're making this loshi margarita with a machine, it's great. Then, you know, you can come and say, do you want to try and sip my tequila too? Or try a new cocktail? Or, you know, aside from the taco you're making, let me teach you a few new ways to do it. But is that upsetting? Like, no, that just speaks to the conversation between the U.S. and Mexico. Is a burrito Mexican? Is it American? Are nachos Mexican? Yeah, talk us through some examples of those kind of border foods. Well, nachos originated in Mexico. And I actually wrote an article for the New York Times on the origin of the nachos because everybody everybody looks down on nachos. Nachos is not true Mexican food. It's Tex-Mex food. It's not real. And the cheese and the... That's not what we do. It's not authentic. The same thing happens with burritos, with fish tacos. But whatever you say, everybody wants to bite that burrito. Yeah, well, and everybody wants to jump into those nachos. And when you stop trying to understand it and you realize that it is a dish, that is a conversation between the flowing, um, ongoing relationship between these two countries. Yeah. You just stop trying to understand it, eat it, and that's that. I think food and drink no, need no passports, you know? I think food and drink have that freedom of existing and of, of, of like, traveling across borders, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, mean, why we all are so obsessed with food and drink. Mm. But uh, quickly, like, what's the, what's the future for tequila and agave spirits? Because we're also seeing a real diversification in tequila as well, aren't we now, and, and agave spirits generally? Well, hopefully we can create more platforms for more spirit development in Mexico. But today, in Mexico, there's around 200 different agaves cataloged in Mexico. Mexico has really the ideal temperature and geography for the plant to really, uh, you know, make it its home. 
And today we only have six appellations of origin that come from agaves. Mm -hmm. And you go to France and they have only 300 just in wine yeah. or Italy's. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, I think we're in the tip of the iceberg. If we get the right grants and the right investment, there would be many more, not only in agave spirits, I mean, I'm also in food, right? So um, I think that the future is bright. I think the interest on spirits, Mexican spirits around the world is at an all-time high and we just need to be smart and very respectful of the land, very uh, smart about bringing the new generations into this, and then very smart about how we continue to seduce palates of people around the world. We've been talking, touching on the sort of politicization of food, I suppose. Now, of course, Patsy, you were a political analyst before you got into food and drink, weren't you? I'm sure there's a lot of um, FT readers who probably secretly harbour the desire to sort of bust out into some new career. When was the moment that you knew I have to you say, gonna... okay, so the moment that I decided to switch, I was tasked with writing a, a political an analyst report on the state of democracy in Mexico. This was 15 years ago and how you could compare the transition to democracy, tortuous transition to democracy in Peru and in Mexico and how you compare the two. And I had a co-worker who was Peruvian when she was telling me about Peruvian ceviches. And I had never been to Peru and she said that the best ceviches in the world were Peruvian. And I said, wait, <laughs> have you not tasted Mexican ceviches? And we don't have one. We happen to have like hundreds. You guys have one? And I was like, I'm going to research these. And instead of researching on the political paper, I started researching on the origin of ceviche, like who got to ceviche first? Where does the word come from? And I went to my boss and I said, I think I am of no use to you. I'm writing this article on on ceviches, and I don't want to go back to the transition to democracy, really. So <laughs> I'll finish that paper, but I think I have to switch. And I <laughs> quickly resigned and, and enrolled in cooking school and switched. But I realized that, you know, for whatever papers I could write that a few people would read in the very small academic circles, I felt like I could be of much more use to people who are looking for a recipe for Wednesday night dinner. And that through that recipe, I could open their mind into being more welcoming to not only Mexicans and our ingredients, but to Mexican people. Yeah. So anyway, I switched. I've never looked back. And, and I really believe in the power of food and drink to open conversations. That's the show. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. This was the final episode of our special mini series on food and drink. I've dropped links to everything mentioned today into the show notes, including Patty's piece about the origin of nachos and a few FT food and drink pieces about Mexico. You will also find a special discount in the show notes to a good deal on a subscription to the FT. As always, keep in touch. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast.ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter, but mostly Instagram, at Lila Rapp. This episode and series were produced by the wonderful Zach St. Louis, executive produced by Topher Forges, and sound engineered by Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll find each other again this weekend. 
It's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793.